What is good, everybody? My name is Tim Karen. This is the Performance Health Podcast. We're on web show number 10. We're talking isolated joint range of motion, sometimes referred to as table test. Myself, Corey Hobbs, Rob Jacobs, we're going to get really deep on all the tests that you can do looking at isolated joint actions and understanding the joint mechanics, understanding how it influences exercise selection, programming, and a whole host of other topics we dove into. This is a really, really good episode that you're going to pull a lot of information from. If you're not a member, you're going to be doing yourself a gross disservice by not having access to all of the resources, the material, the modules, not only that, a testing sheet to be able to download and use for yourself and your setting. A really, really important aspect of all this is becoming a member of the PH curriculum so you can get access to all of these web shows, all the notes, all of the suggested resources, as well as all the modules, which is over 50. So there's a lot of information, a lot of access to a lot more resources than just this podcast. Become a member today. Let's get into this. If you're listening to this podcast, that probably means you're a strength coach or want to be a strength coach. And man, do I have the resource for you. It's called How to Become a Strength Coach, Periodizing Your Career in Strength Conditioning. This is your start to finish seminal resource to get you to becoming the best possible strength coach you can ever be. You can get your copy along with access to our course at phpodcast.com. This is a must-have for any strength conditioning coach or any aspiring strength conditioning coach out there. It will not only give you a step-by-step tutorial on how to become a strength coach, it will help you optimize your career every step of the way. Absolute must-have. If you like this podcast, get the book. Okay, Tim, we got table tests on the agenda today, and I'm actually... Really looking forward to this one because it's not something I'm super familiar with. So kind of have this blank slate over here. So paint paint your canvas of what are table tests going to tell us that maybe screens like the FMS we talked about last week are not going to tell us? Very similar to blood test of it's going to get on a need-to-know basis. This progression from what is the bare minimum I need to know to write an effective program to What is the most I can know to writing hopefully a more comprehensive program? And there's going to be a Pareto principle, right? We can get 80% of the results from 20% of the test. We should just do 20% of the test all the time. But then there's still a whole other 80% that we can do. And it's information. It's all information. And information is either a powerful mediator of writing a more comprehensive, nuanced, specific program, or it's just excess information that you really can't use or formalize into a coherent thought. And that's the great paradox of it all, where you get into blood test or maybe even like a food allergy test, and then you look at movement, you look at isolated joint actions from a passive and active, and it could get into this like whole list of information that you may or may not need. And when you get really into this like setup of training programs and you're looking at it from, I got a hundred people in front of me, I got to just do really smart, really strategic things. I got to be very selective with what I test and when I test versus I got an athlete that makes seven figures or I got a client that makes seven figures and they're paying me a very high amount of money. You have a greater opportunity to, to, collect more information, gather more information, understand more. And there's also more of an obligation to 
follow through in a lot of areas. And one of the forgotten things when you're working with a smaller group of people is you're still spending the same time. You're just allocating that time differently, you know, with a hundred people versus one person, you're still working the same probably hours you would normally work. You just, whatever you would test with that one person, you extrapolate down to couple tests for that hundred people. So when you reverse it back to that one person, it's just throwing the full part arsenal at something at someone. And imagine if I can do a table test of looking at ankle, knee, hip, shoulder, elbow, wrist, and say, okay, like I know the potential and the function of each one of those joints. And when I'm looking at, all right, should I use a supinated grip versus a pronated grip? Oh, well, I'm stronger with the supinated grip than a pronated grip from a like pulling perspective, but they might lack supination. They might lack flexion. And it's like, oh, well, okay, maybe that's not a great selection of exercise. So I might need to go semi-supinated or a, a more neutral or pronated grip. And imagine if you could do that and you can get this very, very specific, I know each joint function. Also too, I'm going to try to increase the range from a flexion and supination or external rotation of the humerus. And I just think it gives you a lot more opportunity to learn more, but it's on a need to know basis, right? Like hundred athletes, minimal time, what information do I need to gather to make a really good program that's going to effectively, it positively impact the largest number of that hundred people versus the one. And, you know, it kind of keeps going back and forth of this in situations is valuable and other situations is not. And if you're in a setting where you're working with a lot of people, it might not be that valuable. But what I would say this same thing with blood test is probably one of the best ways to understand joints, anatomy, biomechanics, is to really get within the joints, right? The the whole Leonardo da Vinci left art for three to five years just to study cadavers to understand anatomy and engineering. Like, you know, that concept of like, just immerse yourself in a subject matter and what's actually gonna give you the, the follow through if you have no idea to do a table test and no idea what a table test tests and what it's actually doing probably a pretty good indication that it's a great opportunity to learn and grow, right? And by some sort of diffusion effect of like, all right, I know way more about the joints and their function and how they articulate. And you can extrapolate from there of like what better things integrate into movement patterns, you know, like a simple logic. If a joint can't go through a full range of motion, how is it going to be integrated in a movement pattern? What compensations are going to occur because of it? And I think that in itself is a powerful a powerful tool for you as a strength coach to understand the human body a little bit better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think when our listeners that are going to think about table tests, or at least for me right off the bat, when we, we came up with this topic, it was like, well, I normally think of that as an athletic trainer or physical therapist kind of, kind of running these types of tests. So what's the difference in what we'll do as strength coaches versus what an AT or PT might do? Or, or I guess another way to put it is like, what kind, what table test should we be looking at and familiarizing ourselves with? Yeah. So strength coaches are looking for potential ATs, PTs are looking for pain and mm -hmm. they're looking for a boundary. We're looking for the upper limit. And what I would look at it from the context of what exercises or what's going to change someone's ability to run faster, jump higher, throw something further, or what's going to change someone's ability to build muscle or have less body fat, whatever the, the generic outcomes that we want to have as strength conditioning coaches and what exercises facilitate that 
you know, really is a great question to think about, right? So if I can get there in the most linear path possible and the metaphor I use, and I use this all the time, and I probably use this, I probably put this in some way, shape or form in every one of the books I've written. It's this idea of like, if I know what ball that, what number that ball is going to land on a roulette table, it's not gambling anymore. It's a strategic assessment of what's going to happen. I know the house wins and they got a magnet under the specific number. All my chips are going there. And I can hold, I can kind of, you know, play this like, oh, I don't want to commit overly because there's a hesitancy. Maybe there's a 5% thought that it might not work. So I, I spread my chips around. Well, that's what a table test is for me is, okay, I know that joint can't do that. And that changes the exercise selection. And I know there's a certain amount of exercise I need to do to get to an outcome. And if I can't do a certain exercise, okay, well, that's really good information. You know, for example, let's look at knee flexion, right? The knee is a hinge joint. And in theory, the joint should be limited by how much extension. So getting that tibia in line with the femur and how much flexion hitting this artificial block of the calf hitting the hamstring. So in theory, that should be the full degree of articulation of that joint. And then we're in a closed kinetic chain environment or a compound movement. And all of a sudden that perceived range of that knee joint is different. Why? Whatever. Maybe it's a lack of dorsiflexion during a split squat or a squat. Maybe it's a poor pelvic control going into an anterior tilt, going into lumbar flexion, thoracic extension. And then all of a sudden we have this really offset pattern from a butt back, more vertical shin squat, and we can't get as much degrees flexion of the knee, whatever have you. But what is that knee flexion really getting me? It's getting me length in the quadricep. It's getting me a greater degree of excursion. So I'm going to recruit more motor units and more muscle fibers in that quadricep. And then as I contract that, it's going to go through the other end of the spectrum of concentrically, I'm going through more overall work and maybe I get more value from that. But let's say I find there is a limitation in knee flexion and that extrapolates out to this belief structure that oh, you shouldn't do full range of motion, split squats and squatting. You shouldn't use a slant board because it's going to be too much degrees of excursion of that knee. You might be limiting a lot of the potential from a body composition, from a length tension perspective, from a force length perspective, from a force velocity perspective, from an overall work and density perspective, just by not necessarily fully understanding the capability and function of that joint and why we can't do that. And for all intents and purposes, when we get through these like benchmarks of like, okay, they got asymmetry when they may be doing a force plate analysis and they may have an asymmetry in the four asymmetrical screens in FMS, or they may have a limitation on the four clearing tests in FMS. That is a certain level of information that has a impact on your programming. You could choose to omit it or not. It doesn't really matter. But the point being is that's going to have an influence on the decisions you make. So if I'm looking through a table test, that gives me a more of a bandwidth to fully understand what the actual limitation is and maybe make a better decision from, hey, an exercise selection and what they're potentially capable of doing. So do I have the joint? Yes or no. Do I have the joint's ability to move through a full degree of excursion passively and then actively? Yes or no. And then from there, do I have the integrated movement pattern? Can I go through a full range of motion in a closed kinetic or compound environment with integrating and coordinating other joints and extremities 
to move through that whatever pattern that I think is going to be the most conducive to getting to an outcome. And simply put is I can fractal out, which is simple rules repeated from that one joint out to the integrated movement pattern. And it goes back again to movements, not muscles, but muscles are the things that we're using to train these movements. So if I look through that joint and the muscles that are responsible for extending the knee, the quadricep and flexing the knee, the hamstring, Okay, well, I could probably have a better idea how to train those muscles and then in theory that motor pattern and have a better overall impact on that. So the range of the motion of the knee is the, is the first step to understanding it. And I probably can get that information on a very low level by going through trial and or process elimination with a force plate all the way through an FMS, a clearing test, maybe looking at some movements that I do within the weight room but I can get a lot more information right away by saying, okay, do they have the actual joint to begin with? And it's just potentially foundational knowledge if the setting's right, but it's also a, oh, wow, I'm glad I knew that before I started to go through all these other assessments type of knowledge. Right, so taking it joint by joint, getting much deeper in terms of what a person can or cannot do that being said, like, when should we start thinking about utilizing table tests? I know you kind of hit on it a little bit, but it's like, so I come see Tim Karen, I'm on the table probably day one, and we're getting a good idea of what I can do, or, or what's, what's your process? Can you take us yeah. through that? So two vectors here, money and time, that mm -hmm. that's going to be probably one of the bigger impacts. And I'm just trying to be real with everyone on this. Like, we had a really interesting, I think it was Twitter discussion about like, if you're not FMSing your athletes, you're probably not really knowing what's going on. And one of our athletes actually hit me up. Like you didn't FMS me. And I'm like, you didn't play. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, we didn't have enough time. Like it was on a need to know basis. Like our 22 starters, we, we FMSed our, a lot of our varsity, we FMSed like, and it gets into the table test conversation too, of like, if I got a lot of time and it's the expectations like you're going to do this. Okay. I'm probably going to do it. The other part would be, what is your resources, right? So if you're in a situation with a lot of other co-hosts here that work in an environment with a lot of really skilled and high level physical therapists, orthopedics, ATCs, you might be able to get that information from them. And if you trust their like ability to assess joint range and function, one less thing to worry about. But then it gets in the other situation of like, let's just say it's just me and their ex expect expectation is I'm paying for your overall breadth of knowledge and I want you to throw the whole arsenal of what you can do for me there. And I can say back to them, okay, I can do that. I can take you through a full table test, functional movement screen, force plate analysis, and get a really good appraisal of what movements would be best or beneficial. Then it gets into the other idea of I'm working with a large group, time and resources are limited, gets into this... I need to know more information transition, right? So we go through a force plate, find pain or asymmetries. We go through an FMS, find pain or asymmetries. Then it gets into, well, if I really want to do my due diligence, and again, we're not diagnosing or we're not appraising or, or potential injury. What we are appraising is what is the limits of what I can and can't do from an exercise selection standpoint. And once I start to appraise that, and I get through this, okay, I'm finding more and more things that seem problematic from me doing my traditional push, pull, hinge, and squat type of program. Okay, well, I'm going to get into this next level of, 
all right, I need to get us some table tests. And let's say I found pain in the lower extremity, like going through an ankle and knee, a hip, and seeing what the potential is of those joints. And then maybe I find some sort of pain in the wrist, elbow, shoulder. Okay, well, I got to look through the potential of those joints and the function and the capability of those joints and start to go, okay, like maybe this person lacks IR, ER in their hip and shoulder. Maybe this person lacks flexion in their hip and shoulder, extension, ab adduction. And you go, okay, what exercises might be impacted from that? And you can start to think about, okay, well, maybe I need to change the grip. Maybe I need to change the stance. Maybe I need to change the orientation. Maybe I need to change the position. Maybe I need to change a whole organization of we're going to focus on soft tissue flexibility and breathing until we can get this thing under wraps and then move on to some more integrated patterns. Or maybe I focus on isolation work with machines or other things that can give me a lot more of a direct vector to getting this person moving without pain and then get them stronger and more robust with what we want them to do anyway, which, you know, it gets into that like conversation of like, if you don't do a single table test on any of your athletes, are you doing disservice? No, you're not. You're absolutely not. If you don't do an FMS, are you doing disservice? No, you're not. Or if you don't do force plates, again, no, you're not. But the truth is, is the more information you have at your disposal and the more you're capable of leveraging that information, the more of an impact you can have with the larger number of people. Like you don't want your value to be tied into subjective markers. This, I really liked him, he's fun, he's engaging, he's sarcastic, he does a really good job of, with energy and enthusiasm. That's a shitty appraisal of a strength coach. Again, it's part of it. We work in a people industry, we work with people all the time, but if you wanna hold your weight, if you wanna be good, not just one year or, or be a product of having really good talent and really good recruiting, you wanna be good over a long period of time, you need to show objectively what you do is effective. And that is the secret to being a great strength coach, is objectivity. And a lot of times we can get lost with just the pure vagueness of a force play or an FMS. It's intentionally vague. It's not necessarily designed to get very specific or nuanced. Because one of the things we talked about with FMS, it's got a high iterator reliability, meaning that you and I and anyone else in the world can do a FMS and have very similar results. Where a table test becomes less and less reliable. You and I can have drastically different experiences with that. We've talked about this with body comp, caliper versus ultrasound. That the user error or the user interpretation is going to be wildly different based off experience and environment. Same thing we see with table test. Yes, it should be pretty binary that this, this is a certain degree of excursion with a goniometric measurement. But one of the things you find is how are you setting that, that anchor point or that foundation for moving that joint, right? Like, oh, I can have... I have 90 degrees of flexion of the knee. Yeah, because you're the you weren't in a hundred, you weren't in a 90 degree position of the hip. Like you should be able to get more if you're in this position. Or hey, my IRER sucked, or I was really good. Like, yeah, you weren't in a 90 degree flexion, you have a good fixed point. You were really assessing it from the rad, bad position. And a lot of times when you work with bigger athletes, or a lot of times you work with females and it gets into this like, hey, I don't feel comfortable moving this joint or assessing it in this way and body comps the same way it has an influence on how that test is recorded and that changes over time right you develop more of a rapport that person loses weights whatever the dynamic you might test it completely different from one time to the next maybe you get better where you're not seeing that necessarily with an fms and a force plate and i think that's the other part of this equation of like 
you have to be really comfortable with the idea that probably this is limited to a very few people and it's going to be very contingent upon their skill and experience with it. And that's okay, just not very reliable over time. And that might influence you from not having to do it, which, which is a huge part of this as well. Right. So, I mean, it all really, if we're going to boil it down, it comes back to how well you can utilize that information. All this information is good, but you have to be able to apply it at a high level. Are there any trends you've seen either with, with gen pop or with athletes or maybe the differences between the two when you're running table tests or, or passive versus active? One thing that comes to my mind is like pitchers, I'm sure, or baseball players in general, they got that crazy range of motion. So are there any trends that you've seen? So, Yes, to be completely honest, one of the areas that I feel is very like almost Eastern, but I think it's getting more and more weight is the body structure and their shape. So a wide narrow looking at a external angle. You can also classify it as like a more mesomorph or ectomorph body type, you know, this tall, long person versus the short, wide person. They're going to have a different structure of their thorax and how they breathe, and that's going to have an impact on their internal external rotation of their hip and shoulder based off the thorax and the pelvis reacting to each other. That's a trend. It, it's associating body type with potential of the joint based off the where we think the way they breathe. Are they going to lift the pump handle, and is that pelvis going to react by anterior tilting and impacting internal rotation of the, of the femur? That would be a thought. There could be the other element looking at the asymmetrical structure of the body, looking at the diaphragm, the organs, the, the rib cage different from left to right and having this different left-right pelvis orientation, different left-right thorax orientation. And you might see a discrepancy of shoulder height, hip height, anterior, posterior translation of that shoulder and hip. And then the next level of looking downstream of internal external rotation of that hip and shoulder. And it's one of the common things that people really don't know is that like that pelvis, that sacrum, that il that, that actual ilium, ischium, pubis, they move. It's, it nutates, counter nutates, internally, externally rotates, and then has a potential to ab and adduct. Same thing with the thorax, the rib cage, the sternum, the thoracic spine, all have a potential to articulate pretty much the big three, flexion, extension, ab adduction, internal external rotation. And the same thing has an impact on that humerus and femur. And, humor, and then we look at that in terms of like, if that's gonna have an impact from a, a sequence. And one of the issues would be, how does that impact a program? Do we just generically prescribe like a left, right, ab adduction, internal external rotation. I think that's associating that everyone's going to have a left AIC or this like anterior tilt if they're like a wide type and limited internal rotation. I don't think you should automatically notate that and saying that's going to be the case because I find there's probably going to be a high probability that that's situationally dependent and changes from position to position. So if they're in a prone supine sideline, tall kneeling, half kneeling, standing, single leg stance, split stance, wide, wide stance, whatever the orientation of that is. But what I would say is in terms of the potential, it might have a really big impact on whether you use a slant board or whether you use a neutral grip and upper body. And one of the things that you probably learn when you do a lot of these table tests and you start to associate that with the body structure is you start to go, 
it's probably easier just to anteriorly load in a squatting pattern someone that's a wide type because they're going to be limited internal rotation of their femur. They're probably going to have this anterior tilt, lifted thorax, lifted pump handle in terms of their sternum. And they're just going to be able to move more comfortably with an with a anterior load like a front squat or a goblet squat. Just from that orienting that thorax and relatively speaking to the pelvis to allow for hip flexion, knee flexion at the same time. And then you start to go, okay, like, how does that impact upper body? Again, probably pretty safe to say from neutral grip for most of your movements is probably going to be a pretty safe position for a lot of your things. And when we get back to the other end of the spectrum of like, how is this influencing and what patterns are going to be like, it just, all right, I'm going to hit a more global, universally safer position to load people. And you find out really quickly, and this is something that probably feels intuitive, I hope it does, is neutral grip people just seem to do better with, like in terms of pulling and pressing. They don't have as much pain, they don't have as much aberrant motion, like a lifted, they're extending on a bench or something like that. It just seems to work better. And then the other end, the slant board and anterior loading seem to facilitate better squat patterns. It just is what it is. And then goes into the FMS of like Gray Cook would always say of like, you train the deadlift, you maintain the squat where you find you don't need as many like biomechanical amendments as I guess I look at them, like not modifications. We can get into lateralization regression model with Charlie Weingraf, but you look at like a hinge pattern, like, man, you look at that, it's probably a pretty easy exercise to execute on. And you go, okay, like, well, that may be the position where I get my systemic load. Right, that might be the area that like I can do that safely and effectively across a large group, and it's not necessarily deadlifting them. It could be like a dumbbell RDL, barbell RDL, relatively speaking, to a goblet squat, and you go, okay, like well, that's the area I can double down on, and I can start to develop people on, and then you get into like the other patterns like flexion extension, and then ab adduction. You know, you you just know that like all right, you get this person that's a wide stance squat, low bar back squat, like they're, they're probably going to be externally rotated and abducted at the, the, the hip. And you go, they're going to have no internal rotation. They're going to have no adduction strength and like low hanging fruit. Like you can expose someone just doing Cossack squats or like full range of motion slant board squats. Like they just get buried and like the work they have to do to get to these ranges. Cause either they don't have the, the sarcomere longitudinally in that quadricep, they don't have the length in certain tissues to move through that full degree of excursion. So you want to bring value to that person that's just doing, they're wearing their chucks or wearing knee sleeves or just doing a stupid powerlifting program for general fitness. Just have them do slant board goblet squat for a set of 10 with a 50XO tempo. You're going to look like you found the secrets to your universe because they can't do it. They haven't done it. They don't have the degrees of function to do it. And I don't need a table test to do that. And it might be typecasting and stereotyping someone but isn't that the game in a lot of ways of like, I need to bring you value. You're telling me you know everything about strength conditioning because you just got on some sort of shitty forum on Reddit and you told me that you figured out the answer, just squat, bench, and deadlift. And you realized over time you hit your structural or, or physical limit. So you widen your stance on your squat, you widen your stance on your deadlift, you arch your back bigger on bench, facilitating not strengthening the tissues associated with that. I can just go in reverse. Slant board, anterior load them, keep your stance in sit down all the way to the hamstring touch of the calves. RDLs, I want you to go all the way to mid shin, keeping your chin tucked back flat, pushing your butt back. They haven't touched those tissues in, a, in the more distal part of that, that joint. And then again, too, I can 
extrapolate that out from maybe I get him on a table test and look at IRER, flexion extension, ab adduction of the hip and shoulder and go, oh my God, this is the worst I've ever seen. What have you been doing? Squat bench and deadlift? Oh, you just learned to arch your back and widen out your stance on both squat and deadlift? You lowered the bar, bar lowered the bar in your back squat? Like, and all you did was double down on that because you thought best way to get better or something and just doing it repeatedly over and over and again? Yeah, well, you've really compromised your joints. And all of a sudden now that person's like, wow, is it that bad? Like, it's that bad. It's that bad. One of the worst I've ever seen. And you go, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do goblet squats, inverted rows, push-ups, and then just a good hinge pattern that I feel like you can be successful with. And I get buried. I get buried every time. And I can make that association or not. And I can go, okay, I'm going to use a table test to really prove this. Or I'm just going to show them through the program that, okay, I know exactly what you've been doing and I know exactly what you need to do. And I think that's the benefit of table tests. It's just you get really comfortable with, oh, yeah, there's a consequence. So you mentioned a pitcher. You mentioned a golfer. Like we throw golfers in there. They're doing something intentionally, asymmetrically, because they can make a lot of money on that. It's like a 300-pound offensive lineman. It, it's not in the best interest of their health, but it's the best interest of their financial worth. So being 300 pounds, probably a higher probability of being successful as an offensive lineman throwing a certain amount of pitches to hit either a certain skill with throwing ball or a certain velocity with throwing a ball is in their best interest. It could come at the sake of a body being symmetrical and having potentially downstream effects of back pain, shoulder pain, elbow pain, back or knee and ankle pain, whatever, like all the, the overuse stuff. Golf always has back issues, right? What a surprise. They're just swinging violently one direction over and over again. You know, you can bring value by assessing joints and saying, okay, like, there's going to be some sort of asymmetry and you go, okay, I have two things to think about. Are they still playing? Do I need to try to like mess and screw with this asymmetry or are they done playing? And can I start to address now getting a more symmetrical and better range in the antagonist movement? Great. You have now an immediate opportunity to bring value. And it starts with understanding the function and potentially getting to the, the, the nuance of what potentially might be in that joint and you can just automatically bring value. But what I'm telling you with table test and all those situations I just presented, you have a great opportunity to learn in a situation of what you do redundantly and what people tend to do redundantly and the consequence of that. And you could find the counter to that. And you could say, I can bring value to this person in light of the fact that they have five years of training experience, just happen to be very focused on one thing or one particular aspect. And biomechanically, they hit their end, their, or functionally, they hit their end point, so they adjusted their biomechanics, and that came at a cost. Right. And I think when you say there's a huge opportunity to learn here, like, like we just threw a lot at people, like all the anatomical positions, organs affecting breath, affecting the thorax, all of that, the pump handle, all that stuff. So that being said, like, where... Should we start? Where should we go? What are some resources? And I know we'll we'll link them uh, in the resources page. Phpodcast.com. That's it. Send them there. That's it. Boom. We got all the modules listed there. We go through the full screen. We go through, to be honest, set it up with variability. Like, I'm just mm -hmm. going to tell you, like, if you're not a member of the PH curriculum, like, and you're asking me what resource would be beneficial, like, that. Like, that's going to mm -hmm. be my answer. The first module we have in movement is variability. What is the potential? Right. The same thing with heart rate variability is the same thing with movement variability. Variability is the bandwidth of the system. So if I have a small variability from very specific, all I did was squat bench and dead, or all I did was very short, intense bouts of exercise, your bandwidth is shrunken. 
and we live in complex, multi, multivariate environments. We live in it. That's our world. We're open systems. We procure energy from the outside world. So we're going to be in constant state of chaos. So your best way to handle that chaos and that potential variance is to improve your variability or your bandwidth and your potential of that range. So it starts with flexibility or passive range of motion goes into active range of motion. What is your ability to pull yourself into that position? And then it goes into integrating into a movement pattern. You, you need to have the joint, you need to have the sensibility, you need to have that mobility, and then you need to be able to integrate that in a movement pattern to increase the tolerance of the tissues that can withstand the forces outside of there. And you need to have a great diversity of movement. Can you move in all three planes of motion? Can you move in all three vectors? And if you don't know what three planes of motion, three vectors, get on phpodcast.com. I, I can't tell you how much I talk about this over and over and over again. And the reason why I can just rattle this off is because it's what I do. And if you don't know as much about it, that's, that's fine. That's completely okay. But it starts with going, okay, like what are some great resources on there? And who's going to hold me accountable to that? Who's actually going to really make me understand this stuff? Not just giving me the end of like, oh, you got to do a table test and you can do these eight table tests. You can do a, a internal rotation, external rotation, flexion, extension of the hip and shoulder and you're good. You got the, you got the, the answers to the inner universe. The foundational knowledge is this, why do you need that range? What is the point? What does it matter? Like, why do I need symmetry in joints? Why do I need structural balance in joints? Why do I need movement competency? Okay, well, that's another higher level conversation. Let's go over that. And let's start to set the standard before we start going to what to do. We got to know why we're doing it. And that's where you can get at phpodcast.com. It's not a plug. It's just being truthful. Like, you know, like I don't need to recommend anything else because you've got everything you need right there. Yeah. And if you haven't been on there, there's probably more information than you could probably ever consume. So if you're, yeah. you're having a hard time, like following along with some of this stuff, like absolutely get in there, read through it and just start plugging away. Well, the message now is, I mean, start with these web shows, right? Like this mm-hmm. is going to be your entry point. And then from there, it just opens Pandora's box into, okay, we're going to have several articles and modules to dive into. And the modules are going to be broken up into four sections, principles, practical, case study, and then some sort of interview with the strength conditioning coach. And it just gets in a whole nother level of, okay, yeah. And we call it chunking, right? The same thing what Epstein talked about in range and sports gene and everything else, like just immersing yourself in a subject matter. Like you get, this becomes rapid and second nature. The more you immerse yourself in it in a period of time, like if I want to develop a skill, like a motor pattern, practice and rehearsal, conscious practice and rehearsal, same thing with learning. Like it's, it's just getting into the, all right, like I'm going to just tap into this and I have a very comprehensive resource that's going to push me to my brink I mean, you talk about getting into the weirdness, like we have so many modules on not just just variability and looking at different joints, but getting into this other thing of like, well, are we talking about gear ratio? Are we talking about tensor gridity? Are we talking about this idea of well, how are we going to assess this and what does each part of that assessment actually mean? And that's our movement. Like that's our whole movement course. Yeah. And speaking of opening Pandora's box, we got Rob Jacobs coming up next and uh, wow. He's yeah. going to definitely open that box for us. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he's, he smoked it. I already talked to him, man. He crushed it. So you got a good one. This one, it's been a good yeah. one. Awesome. Looking forward awesome. to it. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time, Tim. This was great. You have a great day. Awesome. man. If you like what we're talking about here on this podcast, you're definitely going to love this next thing. It's called strength deficit. 
your seminal resource to developing eccentric versus concentric ability with your athletes. We have a book, we have courses, we have everything you need to be able to implement, understand, and be the best strength deficit practitioner you could possibly be. You can get all of these resources at phpodcast.com and you'll become the best, and I mean this, the best possible strength coach in your setting. All right, Rob, we are talking table test right now. This is a one that I think probably strength conditioning wise doesn't get to a whole lot. So I think it's a good opportunity to discuss maybe the the benefits, the pros and cons, the reliability, the validity, all that good stuff. But I want to open up with how are you assessing joint range of motion for your athletes and clients? So I'll go through a few different tests um, with uh, uh, link, mostly length tension and obviously a, an overhead squat we'll throw in there too. I know it's not really a table test, but it's definitely mm-hmm. a pretty potent one. And I, I've kind of gone through this evolution of, you know, spending 45 minutes doing these sorts of evaluations, trying to get these minute level of fine-tuned assessments. And then, you know, as things happen, as we get smarter, we get more efficient with stuff and sort of whittled this down to five to 10 minutes of testing that really gives me the same amount of information and most importantly, helps me write better programs. Mm. So I, I, that's a great, that's a great point. The, the efficiency aspect, right? Cause there's, there's two ways to think about this. There is how do you get more people in a day from a training perspective, or how do you reach more people from a scaling perspective? And either way, you're going to have to find efficiency or find things that you know you can get the most information and keep whatever test you're doing in a reliable manner, right? And I think a crash course on this is when you start doing remote work and you realize, like, how effective can you be when you're working with someone that you can't go through this extensive testing? So with that being said, though, let's talk about a scenario where you really want to gather a lot of information. So we open up with potentially a overhead squat. We talked about last time, maybe doing a assessment, looking at their ability to go through 612.24. Any table test or joint range of motion assessments you like to use directly if you had a unlimited amount of time or if you were like, hey, I really need to gather a lot of intel on this person. Yeah, so I've got a few. The first one I'll do is internal external rotation from you know the elbow up position. Cause that, you know, if, if and if we start to look at these, it's important to kind of figure out what that can tell you, right? So if I got mm-hmm. that position, that's gonna rule out any sort of overhead work, you know, in terms of whether I fix this or not. And from my perspective also the the press behind the neck is probably one of the biggest bang for your buck upper body exercises in terms of you know it it core strength it can strengthen the glutes the abs and it's probably the fastest way to strengthen the external rotators right but if you got somebody that can't do it then that rules out a lot of options for programming so you have to you know that's one of the reasons why i start there the next one i'll do is the pecs so it's basically sort of a t position thumbs up right it gives you a, a link tension with the pecs Charles called it the Leahy test, which is basically your arms extended. You go up overhead and that one gives you a few things, right? Supinated grip chin-ups, supinated grip bicep curls, supinated grip barbell rows, any and all of those things, whether a client deserves to do them or not. And obviously we want them to be able to do all of those. So if that's a pass or fail, that's going to have a huge impact on your programming. And then that one helps you figure out is this a triceps issue or is this a lat issue? Because the, the triceps component can get very 
mucked up in there without you knowing exactly which one it is. Because if you spend, you know, six weeks trying to improve lat flexibility and all the, you know, all the while it was a triceps issue, you really sort of wasted all that time fixing something that that wasn't a problem to begin with. And you see that you didn't really get great results. All right, let's see. And then the next one will be uh, the Thomas test. I love the Thomas test. It's super uh, efficient, very effective. And then uh, I'll do a couple of length tension things with uh, the hamstrings and the adductors. And those okay. are, I, I think, the heavy hitters uh, that, that I go through that really kind of help me figure out what's going on with the lower body. And then obviously it's not a table test, but the overhead squat. Okay. So in regards to all these tests, are you getting the passive range, meaning that you're pushing them to their end range, or are you doing the active range where they're going to their end range with whatever ability to create mechanical tension, or are you doing a combination of both? Mostly I'll go passive because I feel like that, you know, you get to a certain level with athletes and they become really good at cheating things, yeah. you know, like, so, so I want to see what the passive range is because the, then you sort of know that the active range is going to be better, right? So yeah. if I'm if I'm right on the border of pass fail, and then we put some load into it, then you know, but then you can sort of gauge it a little bit better. But passive range, I think, is a, at least from my perspective, I think is a little bit more effective. Okay, and then let's just go into the shoulder internal external rotation, or even the shoulder flexion Leahy test. In regards to this idea of like pass fail, looking at passive range of motion, is there a, are you breaking out a goniometer or are you looking at from the, if they're in an externally rotated position, could they get a barbell behind the neck by like that breaking this parallel position to the torso or like, is there a, like a strict number you're kind of looking for? So I used to use the goniometer a long time ago when I first started, because I think that's, you almost need to, to really get, get your feet wet on something, right? You have to master the, the minutia before you can start to manipulate it. But now what I'm looking at, and, and I can see pretty plainly too, when you, when you externally rotate someone or internally rotate someone is uh, there's no chance in hell the barbell is going to get behind their head unless they do something really bad in terms of form, right? And and there is an angle to that that you want to see specific angles to. But, you know, in terms of doing this for almost 25 years now, you, you're you looking at it from the, <laughs> from the functionality standpoint more so than, oh, that was 118 instead of 120. That's a fail. Yeah. And then are you looking at a ratio between things like internal external rotation, shoulder flexion, abduction? Are you looking at a ratio of the lower between hip flexion or hamstring length, hamstring length or adduction or abduction or potentially like a hip extension? Are you looking at any kind of interconnectedness to like those tests or are you kind of looking at them in isolation and that gives you some sort of roadmap to program off of those things and like direct, okay, this test gives me these exercises I can or can't do. Yeah, so I, sort of all three of those things. I, I'm looking at each test individually in isolation, and then you can start to look at how they relate to one another in terms of, so like, for example, the external rotation, right? That's going to rule out several exercises. But then if I look at that together with internal rotation, then I can start to see more of a bigger picture. And then also looking at the pecs together with that and, and, and the, the Leahy test with the upper body. Now I get a really good idea of, Okay, external rotation is really bad. Pec 
pec length is really bad. So what's going on on the backside of the body that's making this upper body flexibility so poor? Like how strong or how weak are these muscles in the back that, so is this a flexibility soft tissue component or is this a lack of strength in some of these antagonistic muscles preventing the length here? Mm. And then you sort of do the same thing with the lower body test, right? If you look at, when you're looking at hamstrings and then the, the adductors and even the Thomas test, I'm going to look at them separately, individually look at the minutia, minutia there, and then start looking at them together. Like, wow, the the adductor length on the left on the left side of the body was twice as good as the hamstring flexibility on the right side of the body. There's some sort of bilateral deficit going on here that I need to take a closer look at and really nail down on. So then that can potentially lead you into further testing, or maybe that's where you can start to get into busting out some of the the more minute tests. But really, what what I'll do knowing some of the soft tissue techniques is I do the test and then see how much I can improve it with some of the uh, gua sha and the pimps and, you know, some of that stuff. And then that's where we start progressing forward. Like, all right, well, I can fix this without it being a big issue. And then we can use training to correct the issue. Wow. Okay. And then I guess this is like a little like sidebar question, structural balance assessment. Let's say you look at shoulder external rotation strength elbow on knee and you're doing 8rm with a certain percentage of your biochromial bench do you have an idea or do you have an order that you like to look at in terms of the passive range of external internal rotation then do a structural balance assessment or are you doing a structural balance assessment first and then are you getting a gauge on, hey, I probably already know this person's going to be restricted in internal external rotation based off of being weak, or I probably know this person's going to be weak based off having limited ER, IR? Yeah, so when I start to look at pass-fail, that'll sort of determine whether or not they can even do this, right? So yeah. if I've got, say, they miserably fail the the internal, external, you know, both of them, right? It's usually most of the time people <laughs> people fail both of them. So I, I won't include that in the test. So, and, you know, I, I know in terms of strength, you're looking at things like, well, I need to get numbers on that. Well, if, if at day zero, they didn't have the ability to even do the test and 13 weeks later they are, they've improved enough mobility wise to deserve to do the test. That's a substantial improvement. You know, okay. no, no matter if you're an athlete or if you're gen pop or whatever you're, whatever you're looking at, it's like, Hey, you went from not even being able to do this to now we need to see how good you are at this. Right. So I, I think yeah. that's a, that's something I think people miss when they really get like, all right, these are, you know, external rotation trap three are my tests. Like, well, if they fail the mobility component, right. They, you wouldn't one RM somebody's front squat if they can't do an actual front squat, right? Like you, we know some of these things, but we don't really start, we don't apply them, you know, to, to some of the remedial lifts because we don't give them the respect that I think they, they really deserve sometimes. And, you know, some like, I mean, I've done that too. Like I, I somebody fails the test, like we're going to do it and I know you're going to fail, but realistically we shouldn't have done it at all, you know? Yeah. You already know the outcome. So it's just going to save you time. Yeah, yeah. So, which, you know, sometimes too, as we talked about with 61224 is kind of an opening thing. It it creates this, like, how I probably know your problem and I also know your solution. And when someone's, like, entertaining the idea of investing time and money into you as a trainer, it has to have this salesmanship component of, like, what value you're going to bring and the realization that, you do have things to work on and chances are I'm probably one of the best people to do that because I can see this clearly and I know the path to go from here, which 
I think is a powerful mediator, but it's a great segue to my next question. So I want to open up with some of these like strategies or interventions. And there's a whole host of things when you see passive range of motion restriction from a soft tissue, flexibility, mobility. A couple come to mind, um, obviously with our more polyquin background, Pimpst and Gua Sha. Uh, you can even throw Fat Tool in there, which I got a great story about Fat Tool <laughs> and how I invested money into it. And Charles said that was stupid. I was like, well, what's your seminar? But either way, I digress. Uh, with PIMPS, first, I think it's, let's, do you know the acronym and what it stands for? Yes. Poliquin Instant Muscle Strengthening Technique. Which is a very creative way to plug your own name within a, within a, a technique, right? So it's. It it's was now he was being a sort of thing, right? Yeah. So instead of saying poliquin step up or the poliquin whatever, you basically just put in an acronym for him, and it seems less narcissist, you know, <laughs> like the the Karen Institute of Training, something like CIT or something <laughs> like. Just a nice way to like say I am very into myself, <laughs> and either way, pimps. Do you do you have a really good explanation for pimps and how you would explain that to someone who has no familiarity with it? I think so. So I asked Charles one time, you know, like the mechanism and all this stuff. And, <laughs> and this is how I tell people because it, it actually helped me make it make more sense. So yeah. he was like, it, it's like putting the light switch to the bathroom on the other side of the building. It still turns the lights on and off, but it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Mm. So... <laughs> So that's sort of the explanation as to how, you know, messing with your ears improves your shoulder flexibility and your hip mobility. Now, the long explanation, which I think we actually have pretty good information on now, is that what we know about, as woo-woo as it sounds, chi and the meridians and all of these things, is that all of the meridians are concentrations of electron flow through the specific anatomy chain fascial lines that, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, they couldn't explain back in the day, but now, you know, the Myers took it to the anatomy chain. So we know that all of these things link through fascia and the specific meridian lines. Now that now we know that that's actually electron flow directionally through the anatomy trains, like functional lines. So by doing some of these points, you're essentially improving communication. And that is, is basically the, the mechanism of action for, for how these things actually work because it is transient, right? You, I mess with your ears and now you pass the test, but 48 hours from now, you're going to be back to failing if you don't do anything to, to further your, your communication skills to be able to pass the test moving forward. Mm. And that I think is actually the beauty of it is that, you know, like you, I get, I, okay, I can get you to pass the test from failing before. So now you can do exercises you couldn't do. And we're going to do the exercises that strengthen that range that you didn't have. So that's where, if you really like hone in on this stuff in six, eight, 12 weeks, you can take somebody who could not do a press behind the neck and give them remedial based exercises, strengthening that end range where on week 13, week 14 of a new program now, you can actually do exercises you physically could not do correctly or safely 12 weeks before. And I think that's the beauty of all this stuff. Cause when we just look at manual flexibility and some of those things, like I know my own struggles with flexibility training, like 
I've done that a lot and not seen any appreciable benefit in, in real range of motion, you know, but when mm -hmm. I do stuff like this and have regularity to it, I actually see tremendous improvement. Yeah. And then the other idea of, let's just say gua sha and, or anything where it's facial abrasion or fascial abrasion, looking at this self myofascial release, any of these techniques of like surface level, let's try to hit that, that epidermis down to the fascia, down to the muscle tissue type of manual therapy. And you can get a little bit more pressure with like an ART or something that applies this, like, all right, we're, we're trying to manipulate tissue here, whether it's the sliding effect or the actual, a tension point or trigger point within the muscle. The order, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is all right, if you're gonna do a gua sha or an ART technique, that's leaving them long and weak, where you're gonna go pimps following that to get them long and strong, right? To align whatever newfound tissue lengthen that you have. So it's, hey, like assess, the move, assess that range, do some sort of soft tissue manipulation, whether it's gua sha, fat tool, et cetera, and then do pimps following that, which would leave them long and strong to make a more permanent line of communication is that accurate yeah i think so because you you know with the, the only difference in, with some of those modalities is that pimps is something you can use between sets for somebody that has an acute issue to creep up or mm. you know it, it really is a performance enhancing technique whereas you know when you do something like gua sha you're not necessarily going to want to do that in between sets you know it's like foam rolling right those are sort of quiet quieting, quiet inducing techniques. Whereas like pimps, like we said, it's a communication enhancer. Mm. So if your shoulder just starts to feel a little tight on the press behind the neck, you know, or as pump induces, you're getting a little stiff or whatever, right? Yeah. I've used it in, in uh, you know, hundreds of different scenarios. The fact that it facilitates improved performance and communication is, is sort of the different, the differentiating factor of it versus body tempering or gua sha or fat tool, or even things like ART, you know? Yeah. So great segue for Tim's story time. So I did fat tool at Poliquin world headquarters and we're East, East, East Greenwich, Rhode Island, really fired up on it. I was like, Oh, here's a great way to get some sort of like hands-on work without being a licensed massage therapist or a actual clinically trained person. Find it's a very like loose interpretation of the rule when you have some sort of medium between you and your hands, either way, neither here nor there. So I went through it all. I uh, thought it was fine, very selective with when I use it. Then I did the internship with Charles and it was pretty much this whole segue into Gua Sha and integrating with pimps and using some sort of, you know, three major tests of like between Thomas test, overhead squat and Alehi, and then getting into this like, all right, they're restricted in their lats or their pecs or restricted in their hamstrings. Maybe they're the thoracolumbar fascia is restricted. Okay, do some Gua Sha, do a pimps point and then go from there. I'm like, hey, where would Fat Tool integrate into this? And Charles was like, that was stupid. You shouldn't have done that. I was like, I was going off the pretense that you gave the approval. And he's like, I thought it was dumb all along. I never agreed. We should have done it. I'm like, then why would you sign off on it? Like I paid damn good money to go to that thing. And like, here I am now saying whatever I did and paid good money. I'm like, do I get my money back from that? And he's like, no. I was like, that seems like a bill of goods. Like what the hell? Why would you, what, who's to say not three years from now, this will be obsolete and something else will be way like a different level. Like as he's like, 
yeah, it seems like your fault. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I should have vetted this better, I guess. I just trusted you unfairly so. But with that being said, Bill Greenberg and I did the internship and he played catcher in baseball and he's phenomenal overhead squat. Like he's, he's got great, great overall movement. He's a phenomenal athlete and did overhead squat assessment, which looked lights out really good. And then Charles had me work on his pec and his lats. And, and one of the funniest lines I've ever seen in my life, it's the, oh my God, this is the worst I've ever seen, which is such an hysterical <laughs> thing. When you think about the context of what that means of like, I've worked with thousands of people and Olympians to, to housewives, et cetera. And you're the worst, like the worst I've ever seen. And I'm like, and Will and I were kind of joking about like, wow, of the thousands of people Charles has seen in his, throughout his career, you are by far and away the worst, definitively. <laughs> like, and, and I did the full gua sha technique and did his overhead squat assessment and and him and I believe it was Carlos were like, wow, man, really good job, Tim. Man, that overhead squat improved a lot. I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> He only had one way to go. He was the worst we ever saw. So like, <laughs> it, was like it wasn't that bad. I'm like, come on, man. We all know you were awful at this and I may, I saved you. So uh, <laughs> it is so funny. I still use that to this day. Like, I'm like, oh my God, this is the worst they've ever seen. Like the worst, like you've been doing this for 20 years and you've seen thousands of people and various tests and things and <laughs> I'm the worst. Like, yeah. The worst hysterical way to sell or market or like just describe how valuable you are in that situation, and then do like a test where it's like interpretation is like by the user, I guess. But like, oh my god, you improved dramatically! Like, thank god you found me. I just saved you because you were the world's worst, which is hysterical. <laughs> so, with that, being, yeah, yeah, for sure. With that being said, and this idea of in a like large group or one-on-one -on -one, how are you and i'm sorry for the segue there but how are you using some of these techniques within your setting are you using it quite a bit are you on a hey case-by-case -case basis because maybe there's certain people that don't want soft tissue or pimps included with what they're doing and then there's other people like give me everything you got so you know what context are you using some of these techniques so in one-on-one -on -one scenarios, I use them across the board just because it expedites results. And I, I do a lot of like semi-privates, mm. which makes it really difficult because then, you know, if you do that, you basically end up spending almost half your time doing that sort of thing. Because if you do yeah. it, you got you know, you got to get it on everybody. So what I do in the larger settings tends to be more manipulations via things with the foam roller and body tempering that sort of give me a similar effect, not as good, but I can be like, Hey, hop on the foam roller for 60 seconds and do this movement. And we get a little bit of like an ART type of effect and yeah. I'm not having to manipulate their tissue. Right. And the, the body tempering stuff I will use in, in situations where it's a, a way to temper where either I can have two partners do it to each other or, you know, one partner do body part X, one partner do body part Y to the other guy, which I think is really useful because the body tempering is really cool. It's just difficult. And unfortunately now with the back, I can't body temper anyone. So that sucks. But, you know, I've, I've found it helped me in certain situations and I find that it's pretty, pretty useful, especially with, with specific things. You know, I think it helps with joints and, and spacing and, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, realistically, if you've got a group of three or more, you're probably not going to be able to dedicate quality tissue time. Because what you don't want to do is like rush through an ART style tissue work or rush through a gua sha and not, you know, 
the techniques don't take long and you can do them quickly. But one thing I've seen like evaluating people starting to do, do these types of things is that they try to do that too fast rather than doing a, a good job. Right. And it's, yeah. you know, take your time and slow it down and do it when it's applicable because there's tons of tricks that you can utilize with this stuff. And with experience will come knowing, okay, I need to use pimps in this situation with this group, or I need to use whatever with, you know, a group of 10, right? Cause when you're looking at like the collegiate setting or, or even like how you guys do your, your classes at Allegiate, unless you're just going to cherry pick people in between sets and pimps, you know, like, ah, come here, you know, it, it becomes a difficult situation to, to really, cause then, you know, then you'll get like, well, so-and-so got one-on-one -on -one attention from Tim today and he tugged on their ears for 30 seconds and nobody touched me. Well, we always you know? say that. I joke with the guys at Army that an ear tug is the ultimate sign of approval. Um, <laughs> when I give you an ear tug, that means you know I like you. But it's also the guys who know that, like, there's, like, a certain level of the elite guys that we worked with that knew how weird we would get with, like, the polyquin pimp stuff. So they were like, is that, like, a technique you're using on us and not just giving us some sort of approval of, like, it's for you to determine, you know, like, I, I can't tell you, I, I can't let, I can't make that decision for you because that would influence the intervention. But well, I guess, it's good... you know, there's also, sorry, just to jump back in on that real quick. Yeah. There's also, I don't want to say hyper responders, but generally speaking, the more experienced, the, the more like fast twitchy a person tends to be, the faster they respond to pimp stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. so that also, you know, like Mrs. Jones, who's 40 pounds overweight, that's never lifted a weight in her life might not be the best person to utilize things like pimps on to begin with, you know? Yeah. So uh, that that's a good segue for, for me, because I think this is, I think is the issue with a lot of the scenarios where we're basing it off of this super non-realistic environment of having five clients on your Rolodex and then paying you 10,000 a month each. And you go into these extremes because you have the opportunity to do it versus the real world where a lot of us have a hundred <laughs> clients on our roster and working with small semi-private, whatever the scenario is. And a lot of times it breaks down to a three, I mean, very rarely a four day program. So with that being said is how are you incorporating some blank tension work into this or soft tissue flexibility work within like a three-day program? So I'm a, I'm a big believer in not using corrective exercise, but having the exercise be corrective. So, you know, I will do my best to you to do the applications of these, of these sorts of things, but I try to avoid direct flexibility work. Mm. I don't find it to, to be a very good use of our time, especially since that's not really what they're paying me for. Yeah. So I will either refer out to go do like 30 minutes of direct flexibility. Cause we all know, you know, it, like if you're going to stretch to improve your flexibility, it has to be done. It's just like weightlifting. If you came in and trained your chest one day a week for 10 minutes as an afterthought, you probably wouldn't get that much better. Right. So it's the same sort of thing, like where we know, you know, you, you have to get this regular work in and it's better accomplished separated from your, from your weightlifting anyway. Like you're going to get yeah. more flexible if you don't do it before or right after your training, it's best done later. So I, I'll try to use when applicable, right? I would say the vast majority of the time, it is more of a, a weakened antagonist than it is a, 
a shorter muscle, right? Because these things are mostly fascial, right? Your muscles attached to bone and your bones don't change length that much. So no. it's not a, it's not really a, a huge flexibility component as it is like a neural inhibition or some of these other things. So you have to get creative if you're going to adhere to that philosophy. It, it One, it's harder because you can't just, you know, stretch your way out of, out of some of these dysfunctions. But, you know, things like some of the functional range stuff like you guys do that I, I, I saw you do, I think is, is a pretty powerful way to develop flexibility that's not just stretching. You know, I mean, like you, nobody's if you haven't done that before, like your warm ups were brutal. <laughs> like that was a, that was an intense warm up. And that's a great way, I think, to build flexibility without stretching. Right. Because you're because essentially you're building strength through an incredibly weak range. Yeah. Which is ridiculously hard because something is, is, you know, basically too weak to deserve a weight. So your, your body weight, which is the secret of that though. It's, it's checking the box for whatever isometric work I wanted to do on that day, as well as the other end, it's a potentiating strategy, right? We are getting someone to end range and we're forcing them to do a contraction, which may or may not lead to a cramp. But when I get people into this like crampy zone, probably means they're activating recruiting motor units and muscle fibers that probably they're not doing in a traditional like ballistic type of warm-up like so i think there is a yeah there's a, a goal of trying to increase space within the joint trying to get more overall potential and capacity in internal versus external rotation for the hip and shoulder or flexion extension for the the knee and the elbow and then probably a lot of flexion extension for the wrist and ankle but the other end of it it's can you create tension in a more end range and i look at that is like what is their potential on that given day during the workout and do they have the potential to get to that range uh, in a squat or a hinge or a push or a pull and i can determine right then and there of like what is their tolerance when it gets hard what is their ability to get to these ranges and the final aspect it's okay, I'm going to do some sort of hybrid combination of eccentric, concentric, and isometric. And isometric is usually the one you always put towards the back end. And this is that like 10% check, done, did it in my movement prep, moving on. And I do like the idea of a more integrated movement pattern and getting these functional isos with yielding or overcoming. But I do have that in some way with this FRC type of world. But I, I, I do get what you're saying in this idea of like, People are paying us to either lose weight or gain weight, run faster, or jump higher. And when you get to this, we need to do a lot of stretching and we need to do a lot of soft tissue and we need to get this stuff. You do get this like, oh, wow. Thought we were going to do a little bit more quote unquote work today. And you're like, yeah, but there's an element of there's only so much bandwidth and latitude you're going to get in that direction so you have to be really strategic just like you talked about with the structural balance assessment and your table test like can i get this done in five minutes and get to work like that's really the bottom line here because eventually they're going to go i i don't want to sign up for just constantly being scrutinized and stretched i want to actually train like yeah okay let me get to what we need to get to because that's what effectively you want to, you're paying me for unfortunately i've seen that more often than not you know like people coming in to to trainers to for fat loss and then you know this big assessment that shows them not capable of doing hardly anything and they spend you know 45 minutes basically in a physical therapy setting which is minimally effective at best right because we're not you know most of the people doing this aren't physical therapists they're you know Kelly Sturette wannabes you know doing 
stuff Shots they don't wear. Calling <laughs> you know, out. They, they, <laughs> they don't really know how to apply the, the stuff that they're trying to apply that well anyway. Whereas if you go to a yeah. physical therapist for an hour, you're going to leave there with pretty decent results, even with a like yeah. semi-competent therapist, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've, I, I was at a particular gym for three or four years where that was really prominent and that sort of pushed me to the extreme side of I am not going to turn into that because I was like teetering, you know, on the hyper, like, Oh, we're going to fix these issues for 12 weeks and then we're going to train. And then I, the more I witnessed that, the less effective it is. And, you know, and I had some conversations with Charles about this that were simplistically eye opening, And he's like, spend half the session or 25% of the session fixing your structural issues or working on your structural issues. And then, you know, it, depending on how messed up they are, you may just be pushing a prowler or dragging a sled for the mm-hmm. remainder of the session for your fat loss work, which is, yeah. you know, when you start getting good at that, right. There's like in some of the strongman seminars I've taught, I go through off balance carries for structural balance, sled work with one arm for structural balance and how to appropriate bent over drags and sled pull throughs for structural balance and how those things should be like, you know, so you can use a lot of different tools for fat loss that address structural issues while still getting someone leaner at the same time and not having to spend 45 minutes, you know, with the band around your ankles doing monster walks. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's perfect ending, man. Man, Rob, thank you so much for that. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. A lot of gems on this one. And what we'll do is I'll put in the the actual notes within the module and the curriculum, you know, these tests and some pictures of what they actually look like. So everyone can get a good shot of that. So become a member if you're not already. And then and then we can dive a little bit deeper. All right, Rob, thank you so much, man. And I appreciate your time. We'll see you next month. All right, buddy. Thanks for having me. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't try to overthink it. Think about table tests as just more information that you collect on a need-to-know basis. A lot of value in understanding more, but not necessary. So as you start to work through a counter-movement jump assessment, a movement analysis, a simple questionnaire of previous injury or pain, and you think, I need more, go to the table test. Understand joint function. Understand joint range of motion, understand all the things that we need to know from a movement competency, and then let that decide and guide what you're doing from a training perspective. All really valuable, sometimes not necessary, but it's up to you to make that decision when you're ready. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This is a great one uh, for for me and uh, Corey and Rob. We really enjoyed talking about it. If you want to get more information, become a member of phpodcast.com to our curriculum. You'll be able to get all of the web shows, the notes, the articles, and then a lot of handouts that we go through a lot. And this is probably the most critical part to the learning aspect. So become a member of PH Podcast, and then you'll get a lot more than just what we're talking about in the podcast. All right, guys. Thank you. We'll see you next week.